Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. love multi-purpose products, don't we? You can just imagine trying to carry around a knife and a pair of scissors, tweezers, nail file, ruler, chisel, pliers, screwdriver, corkscrew, bottle opener, can opener, toothpick, ballpoint pen, magnifying glass, wood saw, metal saw, wire stripper, and a fish scaler all at once in your pockets. It just gets so clunky. Well, now you can imagine no more for a mere $69.99, all these tools and more can be yours thanks to the latest top-of-the-line Swiss Army knife. And who could have imagined 20 years ago, just 20 years ago, that all of us basically would be carrying around our computers and cell phones, GPS, iPod, uh, camera, video camera, day planner, and wallet, all in a single device in your pocket. Smartphone has revolutionized life as we know it. Or perhaps... The greatest innovation of all, I saw a commercial just the other day for the new KFC uh, Finger Spork. It's got all the multifunctionality of KFC's classic spork without all the hassle of having to grip. Because who needs the physical exertion of having to hold a plastic utensil? Multi-purpose products are wonderful. How about multifunctional people? Or more specifically, this morning, multifunctional evangelists, a Christian who's ready and able to share the gospel no matter what the context and circumstance, a Swiss Army evangelist who's equally equipped with nail file, gospel delivery that can subtly smooth out rough theological edges of pagan idolaters in one city, but then who, when needed, can also pull out his gospel knife and surgically and spiritually cut his listeners to the heart in another town. I'm talking, of course, about the Apostle Paul, the goat of evangelism whose example we've been learning from for many weeks now and who we will continue our study of together through the book of Acts this morning. These past two Sundays in particular, we've gleaned 16 gospel principles for effective evangelism from Paul's example in the city of Athens alone. One of those principles you may remember that we're going to zoom in on, especially today, was our need to be responsive, to recognize our audience and then contextualize our gospel delivery for maximal relevance and resonance with our listeners. Now, it's important to say up front, the good news doesn't change. The good news itself is that Jesus Christ lived, died, and was raised from the dead for the forgiveness of the sins of all who would simply trust in him by faith. That's the good news, the glorious good news of our faith. And it doesn't change. But how we share it, how we deliver it, how we package it does. Paul packaged the gospel differently for the Thessalonian Jews at the beginning of Acts chapter 17 than he did for the Athenian uh, pagans. Gentiles at the end of chapter 17. He actually packaged it differently for Athenian philosophers than he did for the Athenian commoners, the polytheists. So Paul was a master evangelist because he was a master contextualist. But this morning, he's going to face possibly his greatest challenge yet in the city of Corinth. 
And I will remind you, as we review our map here, we are now coming up on the end, toward the end of Paul's second missionary journey. We're actually going to see him complete his second missionary journey and return to Antioch this morning. He set out from Antioch back, you remember, in chapter 15. And he traveled north through Syria and Cilicia, and then west through Derby and Lystra in uh, chapter 16, and then all the way on west to Mycenae, you see uh, the top left of, of the Asian sort of subcontinent there, um, and Troas, the city of Troas. Paul had wanted, you remember, to go on south into Asia, or perhaps even north into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit forbid him, and so God gave him a vision instead to head west to Macedonia, across the Aegean Sea there, and uh, through Philippi, before continuing on to Thessalonica and Berea, and then last week to Athens. And this morning, we're going to see him cross south now. Uh, he's down in, in Athens, and we're going to see him cross uh, the Isthmus of Corinth to arrive in the city of Corinth in Achaia. And before we even read the text this morning, I want to give you a little context on this city, on Corinth. Corinth was the largest and most cosmopolitan city in Greece, while the population in Ephesus uh, was over a half million, Corinth's numbered nearly 750,000. Tim Keller notes that uh, ancient Athens was kind of like Boston, intellectual center. Ephesus was like Los Angeles, pop cultural center. Rome was, of course, like Washington, D.C., the political center of the Roman Empire. But Corinth was like their New York City. It was the commercial center. But even more than its commercialism or its cosmopolitanism, Corinth was known for another sea for its corruption, for its immorality. So much so that they had turned it into a verb in the ancient world. To Corinthianize was a euphemism for engaging in sexual deviancy. At one time, there were more than 10,000 temple priestesses, prostitutes in Corinth, such that prostitutes all throughout the Greco-Roman world became referred to as Corinthian companions. Corinth made Las Vegas look like Mayberry from the Andy Griffith show, or perhaps Mayfield from Leave it to Beaver. It was the kind of place that most respectable Christians wouldn't be called dead in, but not Paul. Paul, who thus far hasn't stayed more than a few months in any other spot on his first two missionary journeys. He gets antsy. He gets excited to go share the gospel elsewhere in new places. Of all places, Paul is going to settle down in Corinth for a year and a half. It is his longest tenure of any stop on his three missionary journeys until Ephesus, where he'll stay for two years uh, next week in chapter 20. And yet Paul's two New Testament letters to the church in Corinth make it really clear he didn't stay there because the ministry was so easy. Because the soil was so fertile for the gospel, it, it actually proved quite difficult to take the Corinth out of the Christian. And years later, some of them were still worshiping Paul or Apollos instead of Jesus. Some of them were still sleeping with their stepmoms, 1 Corinthians 5. Some of them still weren't tithing. That's the whole context for 2 Corinthians. And yet, despite all of that, Paul remained undeterred. That was... Another principle we saw last week, Paul dug his heels in, he puts roots down, and he pours his life and he pours God's word into these Corinthian Christians. Here's how he would later put it in his letter. He said, 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people 
that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with you and its blessings. Hence our title this morning, All Things to All People. To the Jews, he said, I became like a Jew in order to win Jews. To the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. We're going to see three additional types of contrasting demographics of, of people this morning that Paul was able to reach with the gospel all because of his responsiveness, his flexibility. Paul was an evangelistic chameleon. And with each of these pairings, we're going to contrast, or we're going to consider what Paul's example has to teach us about our own witness to the lost. And then we will uh, end in a grand finale finish in verses 18 through 23. And so I invite you to stand with me uh, this morning as you're able for the reading of God's word. As I said, from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 23. Um, If you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love to give you one of those at the info bar as well as a gift to you. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I, wouldn't have no re- I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal. And so they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. 
After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the whole region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. Pray now as we submit ourselves under its authority. Holy Spirit, would you come and inspire our understanding, our interpretation, and our application of your word just as you inspired their writing so many years ago on the pen of the Apostle Paul, Luke. Your word, we thank you. God, I pray would you use your word this morning to change minds and hearts for the sake of your gospel. God, would you open our, our minds, our eyes, our hearts to see, to understand, and to receive your word, your gospel truth, and to receive Jesus. We pray this in his name for your glory. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so what does it mean to be all things to all people? Well, I think for starters it means being able to effectively reach both friends and strangers with the gospel. Both friends and strangers, we find both categories of people here in verses 1 through 4. as Paul's gospel targets. First we meet Aquila and Priscilla, his friends in verse 2. Now, of course, they didn't start out as friends. They're strangers when he meets them in verse 2. But pretty quickly, Paul grew a very deep bond of affection with this couple, so much so that in Paul's later letter to the Romans, he will write that Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks for my life, and not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks to God for them. Paul loved this couple, and here in verses 1 through 3, Luke is recording for us the founding and the initial flourishing of that friendship. He gives us a bit of their backstory as well, how they were kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius. We know that was in the year AD 49 when he passed a decree expelling all the Jews. And fascinatingly, we know from the Roman secular historian Suetonius, he records that Claudius did so because of the teachings of a Jew named Crestus. Now, most scholars believe that that's just a misspelling of Christos, and they consider Suetonius then one of nine different credible uh, historical references to the person of Jesus in antiquity just by non-Christians alone. There's strong evidence, extra-biblical evidence, for Jesus' historicity. And so it appears that the gospel had already reached Rome more than a decade before Paul himself would even travel there in about the year A.D. 60. Uh, that's how effective and how expansive the ripple effects of Paul's initial first missionary journey were through the region. But in any case, Aquila and Priscilla, they get booted from Rome, and so they relocate to Corinth about a year before Paul arrived. Paul probably met them in the synagogue there. In those days, uh, Jewish men and women would worship uh, separately, but then all the men would tend to sit together in different sections based upon their trade. And so as a fellow tent maker, Aquila was likely one of the first people that Paul would have met here in town in Corinth. Um, again, probably the year A.D. 50 or 51, not exactly sure on his timeline. But then after meeting in, in the synagogue, maybe his first Saturday in town, they set up shop next to each other the next day in the marketplace as well, maybe resumed their conversation. So, Paul, you know, tell me more about this Jesus 
guy that you mentioned on Shabbat? Does, does he have anything to do with that Crestus man that I kept hearing everything about in Rome before we got kicked out? All the other Jews they were talking about. And then at some point, Aquila and Priscilla, they invited Paul to just come and live with them. You know, Paul, you know, where do you live? Like, you see the tents? I, you know, I'm, I'm new to town. I, I don't know anybody. And so they say, well, come, come stay with us. And the next thing you know, they're hosting the entire church of Corinth in their home, by which point, of course, they have all also uh, come to saving faith in Christ. Certainly, they have by verse 18, when Paul leaves, Paul departs, because he recruits them also to set sail with them for Syria uh, as he concludes his second missionary journey. They're close friends with Paul by the end of verse 18 here. So let me ask you, as we try and take this principle, make it personal. Is it hard to share your faith with those who are close to you, your, your close family, friends? For some of us, they may be the most difficult gospel assignments of all because we fear that we have the most to lose, right? Your, 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 old, your oldest, closest uh, grade school friend way back in... in kindergarten, your, your sibling, or your, your mother, your father, some of you, your son, your daughter, what if I share the gospel with them and they don't receive Christ? It's just going to make things super awkward between us. What if they even take offense? What if they just don't want anything to do with me? It's too awkward. They, they, they cut me out of their life altogether. You know, I find it interesting that in all of Paul's 13 New Testament letters, we, we barely hear a single word about his family, his biological family, that is. He, he talks all the time about his spiritual family, his brothers and sisters in the faith, his sons and daughters who he had discipled. But we hear almost nothing about Paul's biological family. We, we're going to briefly meet his nephew in Acts chapter 23, but that's it. And so my assumption is that as a devout that a Jewish family, most of the rest of his family had disowned Paul by this time as a heretic. And even in this newer relationship here with Aquila and Priscilla, Jews, devout Jews, Paul certainly stood to lose a lot by bringing up Jesus. He risked making things awkward in the synagogue in the marketplace with these people he's going to be seeing and working beside every day. He risked homelessness. He's, he's sleeping with them. Go back to your tent if they don't like the message. Again, we don't know the exact timeline here for when he went to stay with them versus when they came to faith, but you get the point. Paul was willing to risk relationship with others for the sake of relationship with Jesus. Because when Christ unequivocally calls us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, but, but it's got to start in your own Jerusalem, like our own closest circles of influence, our family, our friends, then our failure to do that, our failure to obey him in that calling, even if the motivation is to maintain good relationships with those around us, you know, one day I'll get around to, I got to build a relationship, build a bit, and one day I'll get around to talking about Jesus. Our disobedience to be witnesses necessarily results in a breach in relationship with Jesus instead. We're essentially choosing relationship with others at the expense of relationship with Jesus. Imagine if my family was out boating on the lake this week and I asked my daughter Ellery to throw her brother Elijah a life preserver ring because 
His life jacket's too loose. He's struggling to stay above water. And she replied, Dad, I don't want to risk offending him by suggesting he needs help. My son actually does this um, a couple times this summer. I had to lunge at the pool and grab him before he fell in without his floaty on. And guess what? Every time his response is to yell and try and hit me. How dare you stop me? I can live my life however I want. Some of your unbelieving family and friends may have the same response to the gospel. How dare? How dare you? live however I want. But friends, I am willing to risk upsetting my son to save his life. I love him that much. Do you? When it comes to your closest relationships with unbelievers, are you willing to risk their being upset with you to save their lives spiritually? Do you love them that much? Another reason Some of us, if we're brutally honest with ourselves this morning, might struggle to share the gospel with our friends is that we don't really have any real ones. Maybe your relationships are a mile wide, but an inch deep. Maybe your relationships, you've got thousands of them, thousands of acquaintances, but no one who would pick up your call at two in the morning if you were really in trouble. Maybe you've bought into the lie that guys just don't really have friends. That's, you know, Girls open up and, and talk about things with each other. Men don't do that. Maybe you got burned in enough relationships in the past that now you've convinced yourself that getting close to people just isn't worth the risk, you know, the, the vulnerability that true intimacy with another human requires. I know quite a few folks who are emotionally closer to their pets than they are with any other human being. Because your dog is safe. God programmed your dog to love you unconditionally, but connecting with another person actually requires you to open up, to be known, and frankly, that's terrifying to you. This is really a topic for a whole other sermon on intimacy, closeness, friendship. But if I could just encourage you this morning from personal experience, I would tell you it's worth it. It's worth it. Relationships. God created you for relationship. God created us in his own Trinitarian, inherently relational image for deep, meaningful relationships with one another. And to bring it back this morning to evangelism, those close relationships, one of the reasons they're important is not just for your own soul, but because they are often your mission fields filled with the most potential A stranger may or may not stop and listen to you about Jesus, but a true friend will do so because even if they don't care about your Jesus at all, if they care about you and they know how much you care about Jesus, then they'll at least hear you out because they love and they respect you. This is one of the reasons it's important for us to pursue friendships, even with unbelievers But pivoting to point 1B now, being all things to all people, also means that we witness to perfect strangers. There's just no way getting around this biblically. It's all over the New Testament. Almost nowhere in the New Testament do we find someone uh, sharing the gospel with someone they already have a relationship with. It's always, everything's missional, total strangers. 
That's what Paul's doing here in verse 4, witnessing in the synagogues. Every Saturday in the marketplace, every Sunday through Friday, all throughout the week, seemingly to anyone who crossed his path for more than about 10 seconds. If you, if you were around Paul for, for more than about 5 or 10 seconds, you could rest assured he was going to tell you about Jesus. I had a friend, a friend who was probably the most committed, compelling evangelist that I ever met, who just completely changed the way that I think about evangelism, paradigm shift. He told me, you know, I think that sadly many Christians don't think about evangelism at all. Or if they do, they pray, God, if you want me to share the gospel with someone today, please make that abundantly clear to me. He said, to me it seems abundantly clear all over the pages of scripture that God wants everyone to hear about Jesus. And so he said, my prayer instead is, God, if you don't want me to share the gospel with this person, you're going to need to make that abundantly clear in the next 10 seconds because otherwise I'm going to assume the reason you've decided to cross our paths today is so that I can either introduce them to Jesus for the first time or I can remind them of their need for him if they're still on the fence, I don't know about Jesus, or, or if they're already a believer, just encourage them with the hope and the good news of the gospel all over again today. And so God, unless you specifically say no to them, I'm going to go to them. I have to confess to you, personally, I still don't live that way every day. I, I, I still am guilty of not praying that prayer every single morning, but I should, and so should you, Christian. I pray that Paul's example this morning might convict us and compel us to do so. May we be a church who is known for our boldness and sharing our Jesus, even when it's hard, either because we fear the loss of a relationship or because there's not a relationship to begin with in either case. May we be more committed to our relationship with him than even our relationship with others. Number two, may we also be a church known for our willingness to take the gospel both to insiders as well as to outsiders. It's the immediate context here in verses 5 through 8 is the Jew versus Gentile distinction. We've examined that at length in previous sermons and acts. But here in verse 5, we hear Paul was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then to further drive his point home, Paul leaves and finds literally the first Gentile he, he can. He, he, he walks out the front door of the synagogue and he sees Titius Eustace, his house next door. So he engages in some door-to-door uh, -door evangelism uh, to go to the Gentiles. And then we also hear, though, in verse 8 about Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, who believed in the Lord and followed Paul right out the synagogue as well. You know, one of, the, one of the, the, the rulers, the elders of the synagogue, um, goes to... to help Paul with this burgeoning uh, church plant. And then later we hear many of the Corinthians, presumably both Jews and Gentiles, upon hearing Paul, they believed and were baptized. So again, when, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 9, I become all things to all people, he's got Jews versus Gentiles specifically in mind. Paul himself was a Jew. According, according to him, a Hebrew of Hebrews really, you know, as Jewish as they come, 
an insider in that culture. And yet, Romans eleven thirteen, Paul calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. He's called specifically to outsiders, those formerly outside of God's covenant promises, now who are personally still outsiders to Paul's own kind of way of life. Paul doesn't, you know, when he's just by himself, he, he doesn't live like a Gentile, but he becomes all things to all people to win some. That's what it meant for Paul to evangelize both insiders and outsiders. But if we could just take that principle and broaden it a little bit, today I wonder what this might mean for us. I would just remind you that it's not just the folks outside the walls of the church that need to know Jesus. Not just know about Jesus, but to know him personally. Again, it all comes back to relationships. Do you have a personal relationship of faith with Jesus this morning? Perhaps you grew up inside the church all your life. You spent decades around Jesus, living tangential to the gospel, gospel adjacent. You speak, maybe you speak Christianese fluently. Maybe you even made a profession of faith. You got baptized. You, you officially joined the church as a member. By all appearances, you've got everyone fooled, and you're an insider. You check all the good Christian boxes there are to check. You lack only one thing, a personal saving relationship with Jesus. 63% of Americans self-identify as Christians, but only one-third of Americans, 33%, believe that they will go to heaven because of their confession of sin, and embracing Jesus as their Savior. In other words, as Joe Carter puts it in his title for his Gospel Coalition article lamenting this recent poll, new survey finds majority of American Christians don't believe the Gospel. That's a contradiction of terms. Friends, that's like saying, I'm a big Cardinals fan, I just hate baseball. The baseball is what makes them the Cardinals. The gospel is what makes us Christians. There's no such thing as an American Christian who doesn't believe the gospel. Unless we're using Christian in scare quotes. Self-identifying. My point is this. Even if you subtract out the one-third of Americans who don't claim to be Christians, there's still another one-third of the country sitting in our pews who need to be evangelized because apparently they don't know the gospel. They haven't repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation. I mentioned this a few months back uh, with our uh, Acts 1-8 prayer initiative here this year. We're praying and fasting together every month, the 18th of the month, tomorrow for those in our lives, on our hearts, uh, who, whom God has called us to, we're desperately wanting to see them to come to know the Lord. But I mentioned a few months back, we've got to start by praying for those inside the church already. Judgment starts in the house of the Lord. We've got one, one mom here at West Hills, just one, who writes the same prayer request every single week for her unsaved son. Now, I'm not suggesting that the rest of us, the rest of you, don't personally pray for your children's salvation every day. I hope you do, like I do. But 
I'll just confess, again, my lack of prayerfulness for you. If you don't fill out a prayer card that, that reminds me to pray with you every Tuesday in the office, I, for one, am not going to remember to do that, to pray with you for your children. And don't you want the whole church, like as many people as possible, praying with you for those closest to you who you most desire to see them come to saving faith? I know for me, I, I put both my kids, I'll go ahead and add our third kid in utero. There's, it's never too soon to start praying for the salvation of someone you love. All three of mine are on our Acts 1-8 prayer list for tomorrow, and I hope, I expect, I need you to join me in praying for them. Okay, many of you are, are really, I appreciate I know you're so faithful in praying for me. You, you tell me, I pray for you every day, Pastor. I so appreciate that, and I need that. But can I, can I just tell you, if you only had one prayer for me, please pray for my kids, for their salvation. I appreciate your prayers. They need your prayers, okay? If you want to know what's on my heart, what I'm praying for desperately, I'm praying for my kids. Pray with me for them. That's what church is about lifting one another up in these kinds of ways. Our evangelism has got to start inside the walls of our church, inside the walls of our home. But point to B, it can't end there. It starts in Jerusalem, but it's, God calls us to go to the ends of the earth. Are we reaching out? Are we reaching beyond the walls? That's what Serve Week is all about, getting outside of our comfort zones, getting outside the walls of the church, outside our homes. Are we reaching outsiders as well with the gospel? Listen, God wants to pop some of our Christian bubbles this morning. As some of us, all we know are insiders, fellow, fellow Christians. We've effectively insulated ourselves from non-Christians. Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and then hides it under a bushel basket. He said, you know, you don't light a lamp in the middle of broad daylight. Unless you're like my wife and kids. You leave the lights on all the time. <laughs> get heat for that later. But you get Jesus' point here is that it's the darkness that needs the light. You, you, you turn on the light when it's dark out. Yes, come to church on Sundays, but then let's go out on Monday through Saturday together and separately all throughout your own Judeas and Samarias and be light, salt and light in a dark and decaying world. I think of what it means to be all things to all people. Even Corinthians, one of our parachurch ministries that we partner with here at West Hills, First Light, shine light specifically on the area of sexual darkness and brokenness. And so every June, they go down to the big pride parade downtown St. Louis, and they hand out bottles of water, and they have a little booth, and they ask if they can pray with people. While some of us are staying home, shouting, you bunch of Corinthians, they're being all things to all people. This is what it means to be all things to all people, even outsiders, even Corinthians. Number three, we've got to go both to the opposed as well as to the open. 
both those who oppose the gospel message and those open to it. Verses 9 and 10, the Lord appears to Paul in a vision. He warns him that some folks are going to be hostile, hostile to the gospel. They're going to attack him for it. But God promises to protect Paul through it. And moreover, he calls him to go on speaking and do not be silent because I have many in this city who are my people. Paul, you can't afford to be quiet. How are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear if no one preaches? I'm sending you to preach it. In other words, Paul, even before the foundation of the world, in love I predestined many of these wayward Corinthians for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of my will, Ephesians 1. Some folks, yeah, sure, some are going to be opposed but Paul, others are going to be open to the gospel, and your job isn't to try and discern, decipher, figure out who's who, which is which, so you know who to preach to. Your job is simply to preach the gospel to everyone, all things to all people, and then leave the rest to me. Let me sort it out. You say, but I thought Paul left the synagogue in verse 6. Didn't he give up on the folks trying to attack him? He said, I, I'm done with you Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles, but apparently not. Apparently Paul just couldn't help himself. He couldn't help but evangelize and keep trying. I mean, he'll say later in Romans, I would consider myself accursed and condemned for the sake of my, my fellow brothers, Jews uh, and sisters. I'd go to hell if they would believe. Paul wouldn't give up on them. And sure enough, in verse 12, just like God promised, the Jews make a united attack on him, bring him before the tribunal, saying this man's persuading him, people to worship God contrary to our law. He still won't be silent about it. He's just maybe not doing it publicly in the synagogue anymore. And so they drag him before the proconsul Gallio. He couldn't care less about the religious disputes. He kicks him out. So they just get even madder. They're frustrated. They take it out on poor Sosthenes now in verse 17. This new ruler of the synagogue, because remember Crispus uh, had to be replaced. Crispus defected to the, the, the church back in verse 8. And so now apparently Sosthenes is the new ruler, but he was also too sympathetic to the to Christians' cause, to Paul's message for the Jews, the Jewish mob. He must not have argued their case as strongly as they would have liked him to before the proconsul. So they beat Sosthenes up, and what's the result? How does God use that? Well, he defects as well. You know how Paul's letter to the Corinthians opens? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Apparently Paul used this as another opportunity for ministry to someone who's literally hurting, sympathetic to the message, you know, and then when everyone else beats him and leaves him, Paul comforts him. And he believes. Paul recruits him to go to Ephesus with him on his third missionary journey and plant some churches. I just want to pause here and draw your attention, though, to verse 9. Verse 9, where God has to encourage Paul with these words, do not be afraid. I think sometimes we probably have this, this image of the Apostle Paul as this unshakable you know, warrior evangelist. I would argue, it seems reasonable, that God doesn't waste his words. God wouldn't have bothered saying this to Paul if Paul didn't need to hear it. 
In other words, Paul was scared. He was afraid. And I, for one, find comfort in that, you know, that, that Paul was human. These heroes of the Bible who we have a tendency to, to put up on a pedestal and, you know, we'll sit here and passively listen to their example, but I could never do that because he's Paul and I'm me. No, Paul was human. He may have been the greatest evangelist of all time, but he was still human. Even Paul got scared. He got scared of losing friends. Even Paul got scared of persecution, of death. Paul got scared of not having all the right answers to all of his friends' questions about Christianity. Friends, it's understandable that we get scared about evangelism. It's understandable, but it's also unnecessary. God says, you need not be afraid. Why? Why does God tell Paul that he doesn't need to be afraid? Why can you and I go out this week as we, as we proclaim every, every Sunday as we leave, we're going to go and make disciples of all nations. We're going to go out and we're going to do it. Why can we do that with boldness without being afraid this week? The same reason Paul can in the midst of his own fears and insecurities. God says, do not be afraid why? For I am with you. I am with you. And that is ultimately where our hope and our confidence has to come from in evangelism and in life in general. God doesn't say to him, Paul, don't fear. This is why you were in Awana all growing up. This is why you did all those Bible sword drills. You've got the tools you need. You are self-sufficient. I've equipped you for this moment. You got this, Paul. That's not why he's not afraid. God doesn't say, don't be afraid, Paul. I'm not going to let them attack you. No, as a matter of fact, he warns them, they are going to attack you. I'm just not going to let them kill you because God says, I will be with you through it all. That's your comfort and your confidence. I am with you. And that is his promise to us still today, isn't it? Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. For behold, I am what? With you. I am with you always to the end of the age. So whether we're witnessing to the interested or the indifferent, whether we're with, witnessing to the hungry or the hostile, whether we're witnessing to the elect or the damned, in every case, God has promised to be with us. Lastly, point number four, being all things to all people means we go wherever, whenever, and to whomever God so wills. Paul concludes his second missionary journey with a whirlwind of evangelistic activity in verses 18 through 23. You get the sense here from Luke's writing that he was just struggling to even keep up with it all, to even keep all the people in places and things straight. Um, as for the wherever... Paul's all over the place. He sets sail for Syria, but first he stops at Sancria. Then he came to Ephesus, verse 21. He set sail from Ephesus. He landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church. That's in Jerusalem before going down to Antioch. 
and then he departed from there. Verse 23 went from one place to the next. The whole region of Galatia, Phrygia, really here, Paul's second missionary journey just blends right into his third one. As a matter of fact, if you, you know, do research and, on, on how pastors preach this and commentators break it up, they're not really sure. Verse 22, 23, 24, it all just kind of blends together where one stops and the next starts. Because I, I don't think the guy ever took a day off. Maybe he did as a tent maker, but not as an evangelist. That's his full-time calling. Paul knew that when you're on call as an evangelist, when you've been called as an evangelist, you're always on call as an evangelist. You don't take days off. I'm going on vacation for 11 days, starting in about 30 minutes, and I am super excited to take off. I love being your pastor. I'm very excited to, to just not be a pastor for 11 days but I'm still going to be an evangelist. There's still going to be, I, I hope, I, pray, I should pray gospel assignments for me up in northern Michigan. So that's wherever, whenever, whenever, vacation, while you're at work. The duration of Paul's stops in each city, we hear they varied. Some, some places, Corinth, he stayed many days longer, but then when he gets to Ephesus, they asked him to stay for a longer period. He declined. No, I've got to get going. If God wills it, I'll come back. In verse 23, he decides to spend a little extra time in Antioch, his home church, his sending church, but ultimately, again, it's, it's all up to wherever God wills, being in touch, in tune with the Spirit. As for whomever, wherever, whenever, whomever, Paul takes leave of the brothers in Corinth, but he took with him Priscilla and Aquila. He leaves them in Ephesus in verse 19, and then he goes to the synagogue, to the Jews, so he's evangelizing in Ephesus, but then in Caesarea, he's mainly concerned with discipleship. He's going to the believers, to the, the established church there. Likewise, throughout Galatia, for G, he's strengthening the disciples, and so to whom God calls us might change. Again, you've got to be in touch with God's spirit, his will, his, his leading. And lastly, we can just throw this one in as well. Wherever, whenever, whomever, and however God calls us to minister however possible. Paul even used his haircuts as an opportunity for ministry. Verse 18, at Sincrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. That's the Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter 6. It was taken by those who desired to yield themselves completely to God for a period of time. Samuel, Samson in the Old Testament, John the Baptist, Paul now. Part of the vow is you would grow your hair out for the duration of the vow as a symbol of your devotion to God. And I have to believe Paul took this vow, perhaps when he first embarked back in chapter 15 for his first trip, his second trip now. Not only though to commit himself to the Lord wholeheartedly, but but his haircut, Paul's haircut, or lack thereof, would have itself provided him with unique opportunities, open doors for witnessing. You know, if you think about it, like there was a, there was a socially acceptable length for a, a Jewish man's or any Roman citizen's hair in those days, kind of like there is today. You know, get a, get a haircut, you hippie. Um, you know, and so when people saw Paul with, with this long hair, but they, they knew how devout, uh, devout he was, they would have, I'm sure, asked him, oh, you, you must have taken the Nazarite vow. What specifically, I'm curious, you know, what specifically are you devoting yourself to the Lord for? It's like, well, I'm glad you asked. Have you heard about Jesus? Or, or, or after he chopped his hair really short, like again, so, socially unacceptably too short, like me. Um, he, you know, in Ephesus, Caesarea, uh, Syria, his fellow Jews would have stopped him. Hey, uh, you know, tell us about this. Tell us about your vow. 
and it was an opportunity. So brothers and sisters, hear this charge as we go out this week. In our coming and our going, whether here, there, or anywhere in between, with friends and strangers, with insiders and outsiders, with those who are opposed to the message and those who are open to it, through heart-to-heart conversation and through your haircuts. May you, may we, in all things, be all things to all people that by all means we might save a few. All to God's glory. Amen.